This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Andrew Argent. Dr. Argent is professor at the School of Child and Adolescent Health at the University of Cape Town, and he is also the medical director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at the Red Cross War Memorial Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa. Andrew, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, Andrew, you are the um, first author, a senior author, of a featured article uh, in the January 2014 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. And it's a, it's a wonderful report of um, the development and evolution of a triage guideline that you implemented at your hospital. Could you tell us uh, what were the motivations for that? What drove it? What are the conditions that propelled it? And um, how did you get buy-in for it? Sure. <clears throat> Jeff, I think maybe the starting point is to kind of put it in some context. So for people who don't know Red Cross, to give you some idea of where we work. And I mean, simply the geographical point is the southern tip of Africa where Cape Town is. And you can see it's known as a scenic place and there's a bit of a iconic view of Table Mountain. The hospital itself is some 50, 55 years old and is a 300-bed children's hospital. And what you can see from this picture in our ICU is that we have a wide range of equipment. We can do many of the things that many first world intensive care units can do. And if you look at the place where we work, you get a view like that mm -hmm. <laughs> from the window out from the ICU. The other side of that, although we work in that privileged environment, the majority of our patients come from impoverished environments such as that one shown in the slide and many of the children are living in environments like that and so we have this juxtaposition of a large burden of disease with trauma, with infectious diseases. Cape Town actually has a dubious title of being TB capital of the world and as you know South Africa suffered with an HIV epidemic. And the result of all that is that we end up with a demand for our services which is such that we can't meet every demand. And what that meant that over the years as that developed, as more people moved into Cape Town, as has been part of the migration of people, there was ever increasing pressure on the unit. And for the consultant staff there was this ongoing pressure of there are patients who need to come in, but I don't have space. And it was out of that that we, <clears throat> with support from the hospital management, support from the university, decided to sit down and say, can we produce an explicit policy? A policy that actually explains what it is that we choose to do, which patients we can and cannot admit, and why. In the hope that if we could do that, we would have some rational basis for being consistent about providing care while at the same time making sure that we got the best bang for our buck, that we got the best value 
for as many people as possible out of the resources that were available to us. So that was our challenge at the time. But what I'd like to point out is that I think it's increasingly a problem and a challenge for units across the world. And I want you to look at this data that comes from the Millennium <laughs> Development Goals. And what you can see is that as we approach 2015, the global under five mortality rate is approaching the cutoff of around 25 per thousand live births. Now the relevance of that is that up to now we've been able to make substantial impact on child mortality by doing the basics right of immunization, clean water, access to healthcare, appropriate sanitation. And as we get those right, the mortality comes down. But now to start making a difference and getting us well down to the mortality that's expected in the developed countries of the world, the role of critical care is beginning to become more and more important. And across the world, intensive and critical care units are developing. And as they develop, many, if not most, will have to address the question of how do you bring some congruity <laughs> between the demand for the service and what you have available? And how do you make the best use of what are actually expensive resources to provide the most benefit to the most children? And that, in a sense, is the heart of the challenge that we faced. Andrew, that's a, uh, a profound point that I've never considered, that I've always considered that as the Millennium Development Goals were achieved, that uh, children would be more healthy. But of course, as, w as you're pointing out, well, that means paradoxically, at the same time, uh, the burden on, of disease on more children will necessitate more ICUs for children who are now really viable and bent of potential benefit of that service. Is that, is that one Look, way to summarize it? I think that's exactly right. And, and part of what I'm getting at is if you want to stop infectious diseases, well, you need to immunize and decrease exposure to infectious diseases. But once you've dealt with that stuff, you now suddenly have to start dealing with realities of congenital heart disease, children with inherited disorders, children with chronic conditions. And actually, intensive care, as you well know from your own experience, plays an important role in the management of those children, in facilitating major surgery, in facilitating many of the advances that are now taken for granted in modern medicine. So I believe that it will become more important across the world for more and more communities if we actually gain to address the, the health of children. So the triage guideline that you reported mm -hmm. um, is actually not one that's exclusive to one environment, but as you're noting, is actually uh, it's a scenario that many ICUs across the world are going to face as this evolves, and that is how do we select the patient who can best benefit from the service? Again, that's exactly right. The interesting thing I would pick up though is that I suspect that the truth is that most units across the world make triage decisions and make decisions about who will be admitted and who will be discharged. But I'm not sure that they've made it explicit to the communities they serve as to what those decisions are and why they've made them. And I think that's a fundamental need that we need to address.
Now we'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and ask you a question. Before you answer the question, could you please tell us what city and country you're practicing in? The question is this. In the last several months, has there been a time when the demand for your PICU services exceeded the available capacity? In other words, your beds were full, and yet you were being asked to take another patient that could not be accommodated at that moment. If yes, how did you address this shortage? For example, did you have to postpone surgery or delay transfer of a patient from a referring facility? Or did you have to board the patient in another area of the hospital, such as the emergency department, until a bed could be made available? We're back now with Dr. Argent. So could you tell us um, what steps did you take in developing this protocol? Um, you know, you're, of course, uh, you didn't just simply advise it and implement it. I, I suspect it took a while. Uh, how, how long did it take and what, what approach did you take? Who were the stakeholders that you involved in the process in developing this? You're absolutely right that the process took quite a long time. and. We tried to involve as many people as we could at the time. What that really meant was that we started out with the services that made use of the ICU, that referred patients to us. We included the ICU team. We included the nursing management of the hospital. We included hospital management. And those were really the group that we used to start the discussion. We had advice from people like Sally Benito, who's an ethicist of note, who also was able to give us advice about the process. And we started the discussions with those groups. Some of that discussion meant that we had to spell out our values, what we regarded as important, what we hoped to achieve by this policy. And we also had to spell out the risks <laughs> that were present as we went into this policy development. And just to be specific about some of those risks, so what we were doing in effect was trying to limit what we would do to the resources that were available. And the advocates of child health would say we were now running the risk of not advocating ad adequately for children. And so together with this process, we were still arguing for the needs of children and why resources allocated children should be expanded. We also needed to talk about what the implications were of refusing admission of certain categories of patients to the ICU. And inherent in that is, if I refuse to admit a patient because he has a disease condition that's unlikely to get better, one of the consequences is that I will not be expending energy in the ICU on figuring out how to improve management of that condition because my attention will be elsewhere. And that limits how much we will advance in the management of that condition. Mm -hmm. So we had to be aware that that was a consequence. We had to be aware that, for instance, the intensive care staff could potentially become a little bit dissociated from the burden of critical care out in the community because those patients never got referred to us. And so we had to put mechanisms in place to deal with those dangers and we had to talk about it. We also had to talk about the mechanisms of how we would implement any policy. And some of that included 
decisions that junior staff would never be asked to make decisions about refusing admission of patients to the ICU, that only senior staff would be involved in those discussions. And then we had to spell out some of the ethical goals that we had to achieve. So we wanted equity of access. That meant that any child from anywhere in the region that we served should have access. You shouldn't have better access to ICU because you happen to live around the corner from Red Cross. Of course, there are practical realities on getting you from place A to B, but in principle, we wanted fairness and equity. We wanted good data as to why we made decisions, and that's difficult because for some conditions, we don't have the detailed data on what the outcome was. So it was important to say, let's get the best possible detail and data about these conditions so we can make rational decisions. And then we wanted escape mechanisms, so that if I got something wrong, someone would be arguing on behalf of the patient and saying, I think you're wrong, an appeal process there, and that there had to be an appeal process that went beyond the ICU staff to make sure that we were getting it right. And ideally we needed to collect the data over time so that the community we were serving could make an evaluation of whether what we were doing was actually fair, <laughs> reasonable, equitable, and all the things that we were trying to achieve. I think the other thing that I need to point out is that while we were going through this process, hand in hand with that was a process to make sure that we were optimizing the use of resources <laughs> so that we would have to limit the amount of patients we said could not have access. And so there's a whole lot of areas where one can work in eliminating resource wastage in the ICU. One of the first things, and it's a big issue in the developing world, is the elimination of hospital-acquired infection. And what we discovered as we thought about it was that if we eliminated ventilator-associated pneumonia, central line-associated sepsis, we would free up up to 10% of our intensive care days. So we put a process in to say, how do we actually eliminate that? One of the other things that is an issue with access to ICU bed, and I'm sure you work with it on a daily basis, is the business of what I call elective surge. And what that's about is that, in general, emergency patients are fairly evenly spread out over the week and the day, not on particular days, but over time they evenly spread out. But very often, the surgeons in our hospital want to do lots of surgery on particular days and not much surgery on other days. And the consequence is they were asking for, as an example, 10 admissions on a Monday and then only two admissions on a Tuesday. And if your, limit is if your unit is close to the limit, you just can't accommodate that. And so we spent a lot of time sitting down with theatre with the surgical teams saying, how do we smooth this out? How do we make sure that you allocate the best patient to Monday to Tuesday? Why not put the patient who's going to spend a while in the ICU onto the list for Friday when there's no demand for those elective beds over the weekend? So we spent a lot of time optimizing 
how you use the unit for many aspects. And that then helped us to get into the context where we could think about where patients went or how we chose patients. We'd like to turn again to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Please first state your city and country location. The question is, has the uneven distribution of scheduled elective surgical procedures that Dr. Argent is describing created similar difficulties with the optimal utilization of beds in your PICU? If so, have you worked with surgical leadership at your institution to create a more even distribution of planned post-operative admissions to your PICU in order to promote a more efficient use of PICU resources? Let's resume the discussion with Dr. Argent. Then we sat down and looked at the simple facts of what sort of patients spent time in the unit and what the outcomes were for those groups of patients. And so you'll see from this data that's up on the slide at the moment that pediatric emergency admissions were taking up over half our ICU beds and their mortality was sitting at around 15%. By contrast, the cardiac surgical patients were taking up a much smaller percentage of beds or bed days and their mortality was sitting around 5%. At the same time, there were over 200 patients awaiting cardiac surgery with a mortality on the waiting list that exceeded our surgical mortality. And so you immediately have this tension because we tend to admit the emergencies, but if we don't deal with the cardiac or the elective cases, they become emergencies and have a problem. And actually, the elective cases have as much right to come into the ICU as the emergency cases. And we were also aware of the impact of cancelling elective surgery on the development and maintenance of health care services. And the obvious example is that if I cancel cases, the cardiac surgeon or the anaesthetist who would be involved in that case are wasting their time for the day. They're not being optimally used. And in fact, if cardiac surgeons aren't allowed to operate, they will go somewhere else because that's what they're trained to do, that's what their job is, and if they're not being allowed to do it, they're not going to stay. So actually, if you want to retain specialist services like cardiac surgeons and all the related infrastructure, you have to provide some appropriate opportunity for them to look after patients. And so some of that discussion about how much individual patients were using, what the outcomes were for them, what the waiting list, again, helped us to think through how we set up the priorities and to make sure that we balance the elective needs against the emergency needs. That's an ultimate dilemma. You have a 50% mortality rate on your major admission portfolio, and yet the portfolio you're trying to get in there electively has got a great outcome. And so what do you do? I mean, obviously, that's why you had to do something. I think you're exactly right. And, and I'd even state it further that actually the unit we have here in Cape Town has the biggest cardiac surgical throughput in the country. And when you look at the cardiac surgical throughput for the rest of Africa, it's absolutely tiny by comparison. So if we lost that expertise, 
it would not just be for the people of Cape Town, it would be for a much wider community. And that's some of the importance of doing it. But it's not just about balancing the needs of the patients, the medical and surgical teams that look after those patients. I also have to hold it in tension with the needs of the staff who work in the ICU. <coughs> because as I guess you well know, if we put too much pressure on the ICU, one is we have risk of adverse events. And we again have to balance, so what is an acceptable adverse events rate versus what is an acceptable patient throughput? Because I could cut the number of adverse events by reducing the number of patients, or I might have to say I will accept an adverse event ratio that you might find unacceptable in Boston, but it may have to be what we accept. And that was something we had to discuss. And the final component is that if we put too much pressure on the staff in the ICU, nurses particularly are a precious resource. If I put too much pressure on them, I run the risk of burning them out. And that too would risk damaging a resource. And so, as you pointed out, we're trying to balance different needs. The needs of children, the needs of the health service, the needs of the people who work in it, and that's in a context of a community and, in fact, a continent that has limited access to these sorts of resources. And with emphasis, uh, it's, it's clear to me, and I'm sure it's clear to our audience, that when you, when you say you're struggling with all these balance, it's, it's evident you've been doing this for 30 years, that the preservation of a child's life is the greatest goal that you have. But what you're saying is if the system breaks, uh, because of that massive burden you have of such high illness, then the system's not there for anyone and it can't save it. It can save fewer children's lives. That's I the struggle you're <coughs> trying to maintain. I, I think that's taking it to the logical consequence. And so we having to aim for a dynamic balance that tries to give us the best or the best utilization of what we have for as many people as possible. We'd like to turn again to our colleagues around the world and ask you a question. Please first state your city and country location. We are interested to find out about the use of admission policies around the world. Does your program have clear stated policies about which patients should and should not be admitted to your PICU? If so, does that policy describe which patients should take priority over other patients? If you do have such a policy, would you be willing to share it? We're back now with Dr. Argent. So could you tell us who were the stakeholders and how did you bring them into this? In terms of the stakeholders in this process, quite clearly the ICU staff were stakeholders. The speciality and medical services who refer patients to us, be they emergency or elective patients, are stakeholders. So our hospital management, both nursing and medical, the provincial department of health, all of those were stakeholders. Clearly, patients, their parents and the communities they come from are also stakeholders. And I think one of the shortcomings in our process is that we didn't manage to bring those people on board. Though in self-defense, I think it's often very difficult to 
bring people from those communities into this sort of process while giving them real freedom and autonomy to express their views. And I'm afraid that on this one, I don't think we did that as well as we could have. Possibly in the future we will get that better. What we did do, and I'm not sure that we did it with this process in mind, but in retrospect, we fitted in with the accountability for reasonableness process that comes from a group in Canada that described this process of developing resource allocation. And what they pointed out was that it's important to be explicit, to actually state what you're going to do and why. In other words, on what basis that decision is made. And to make that transparent so the people who are affected by that process know why you're doing it, which then gives them the opportunity to push back and say, well, we think you've got your facts wrong, or actually that may have been true last year, but it's no longer true, or we don't agree with your assessment and we want you to reassess it. But once people have had an opportunity to participate in that process, to know what's actually happening, the final responsibility is to apply that policy absolutely consistently to everyone. It clearly is not going to function if different people get treated in a different way. And we understood at the beginning that we needed to be absolutely even-handed in this process. But as we'll come back to it, that's possibly not as easy as it's made out to be. Dr. Arjun, um, you know, you're being very candid about um, uh, the steps you took and in, in retrospect the limitations, and in particular involving the community. One of the reasons that we have to be particularly mindful of the community we serve is that poorer communities already have many barriers in terms of access to health care. We've recently looked at the pathway by which patients from poor communities come all their way through into sophisticated healthcare services and the astonishing number of barriers to care ranging from simple geography, from transport issues, from language and communication issues, from services that may be overloaded and so we are deeply concerned that poor people already have limited access. So in that context, it's a deep concern that we weren't able to sample the poor communities, particularly in terms of their approach to this policy. But I do think that the people involved <coughs> set out with a sense that we had a real heart for those people and were determined to make sure that they had access in a fair and reasonable way to these sorts of services. So let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of what we then looked at. So who should be admitted? And, and I guess the first thing is, well, anyone who can benefit from what an ICU can offer. And an ICU will offer detailed monitoring of patients who are unstable, life support in different organ systems, as, as well as attention to detail and in some cases it offers patients enough time so that we can make a definitive diagnosis and that's what they come to us for. What that means is that patients who are not 
sick enough to come to the ICU don't need to come. And so we excluded those where we felt that they wouldn't gain significantly from coming to the ICU because we thought they were too well in inverted commas. Now, of course, that's, that's a little relative because if you have plenty of space in your ICU, if you're at all concerned about a child's condition, you can move them into the ICU and observe them. Whereas if they virtually need to be on a ventilator before you can admit them, then we get much closer to the limits. And I think one of our concerns was that the closer you get to that limit, the higher the probability that I will make mistakes with my decision. And there's data from across the world that intensivists are not 100% accurate at predicting exactly what's going to happen to the patient in front of them. So on the one hand, there are patients who we felt that they weren't really that sick and we could afford to continue their care in ward areas and possibly some level of high care area. At the other extreme, there are patients who we labelled as too sick to benefit from ICU. And there were different categories of patients in that group. So there are patients who have life-threatening underlying conditions where what you know is that they might get through this admission but they are inevitably going to die within a fairly short space of time from the underlying condition. And we decided that we wouldn't admit those patients. There are some patients that under a number of um, recommendations, for example from the Royal Colleges of Paediatrics and Child Health in the UK, have pointed out that patients with irreversible brain damage, patients in a vegetative state, are also not going to benefit from benefit from ICU and said we said we would not accept patients like that. But there were some other conditions where we had to think long and hard and some of those were patients who, as an example, and this started some time ago in the HIV epidemic, we had some patients with HIV infections who were coming to us. And what our data showed at that time was that the ICU mortality was about 35% in those patients. But that mortality rose to 50% within the hospital stay. And by six months, over 80% of those patients were either dead or had disappeared from our health services. And we didn't have access to antiretroviral therapy at the time. And so we made a decision that those patients with established HIV disease would not be admitted to the ICU. That has changed over time <clears throat> and it's interesting to note that currently the mortality in ICU for patients with HIV infection and respiratory disease is of the order of 15% and virtually all of those children will go home well on ARVs. So that's changed dramatically and our policy has changed as a result of that over time. So with emphasis, the point being, you didn't have antiretroviral therapy in, in the first era. And so the decision was, if we don't have a fundamental treatment, mm -hmm. then short-term ICU care can't forestall the inevitable. But with the advent of antiretroviral therapy uh, in your community, you then changed your triage policy to admit these children because their outcome uh, would be much better as you noted. That's exactly right and 
I must admit that I found that reassuring that our process involved enough flexibility that when things began to change, we were able to change our policy in a way that was appropriate to those children. So that has been a reassurance. And there were some other categories of patients. For instance, patients with kwashiorkor with septic shock in our hands had an appalling mortality. Virtually all of them died. And so we said we would not admit those patients. And so the result of what I've described was that we had some idea of who was too well to come into ICU. We had spelled out groups of patients who felt or we felt would not benefit adequately from ICU or possibly would absorb significant amounts of ICU time without much benefit to them. I do want to add in parenthesis that there are patients, to my mind, where admitting them to ICU actually prolongs suffering and does not offer life to them. And we also felt that those patients should not be admitted to the ICU. And that really wasn't part of the policy, but that's an underlying ethos of saying what we're here to do is to reduce suffering and offer life, not to prolong suffering. Once we developed a policy, we went through the process of informing hospital management, the provincial health authorities we were going to implement it, and we went ahead with that. Um, I have to say that there were quite significant challenges to us to implement it, although in many ways having the policy made our lives much easier because people now knew what, what we were thinking, why we were thinking that. The first issue was that while it was easy to make sure that people at the, in the hospital at the time of this whole process knew about it, we are teaching hospital and there was a rapid turnover of staff and it's been a real challenge to make sure that everyone continues to know what the policy is. The other challenge is that we were faced by our own variation in practice. I discovered that I don't make consistent decisions from day to day. It's affected by which patients are in the ward, what pressure I am under, and some of those sort of factors, as well as how patients are presented to me. We discovered between our colleagues that we also vary <laughs> in terms of how we actually approach problems, and so we weren't always totally consistent. But we tried to address that by talking to each other, by sharing what was happening. I guess the important thing at the end of implementing that was to monitor well what an earth effect did this have? And did this have implications for poor patients? Did it have implications for patients with a certain handicap? And what is interesting to me is that with implementation of this policy, one, the hospital mortality continued to go down over time. So there weren't an increase in patients dying in the hospital because of this process. In, in other words, uh, the mortality rate on the ward or on the floor did not rise because you were pushing those kids out, but mortality rate throughout the hospital continued to fall. <coughs> That's exactly right. 
I mean, this also fitted in with all the other initiatives in the ICU, that the ICU mortality continued to come down over time. And with the monitoring of the process, for instance, we tried to monitor the predicted risk of death on admission using the PIM2 score, or the Pediatric Index of Mortality score. And what happened over time was that the average predicted index of mortality remained in the range of 10 to 12 percent, which we interpreted as meaning that we weren't accepting too many extremely high-risk patients, <laughs> but there were very few patients who were low-risk coming into the ICU. And that was one way, together with ward mortality, the hospital mortality, and a review of our practice to monitor that we were not causing harm in this process. And subsequently, we also had review processes where different clinical services in the hospital and the cardiology service did it, the infectious disease service did it, where they could come back to us to say, we want to check that our patients are getting a fair deal. And we were able to reassure them that their patients were being equitably managed and having equitable access. In fact, we were able to maintain rates of elective surgery despite ongoing epidemics and infectious diseases in the community. Dr. Argent, um, clearly one of the questions I'm sure on everyone's mind is, and uh, we'll have a chance to look at the data from your January 2014 publication shortly, but I'm sure the top question on everyone's mind has got to be, was there a difference in, uh, in either race or socioeconomic status amongst the children who got access to the pediatric ICU before and then after the implementation of your protocol? I am not aware of any change in the profile in terms of race, socioeconomic status, or any other marker of groups of people as a result of this policy. And I think I am accurate in saying of my colleagues that all of us were focused on trying to provide the best deal for all children who needed access to critical care services. So there are a few highlights from the manuscript that, that I think are worth sharing. We do have a table that, as you can see, that spells out the final decision, the document as to who would be accepted and who not. And I think you have an opportunity to read through that table. One of the other tables also shows a range of the ethical principles that we believed had to be met in this process, which include issues such as equity, trust, transparency, consistency, and you can see the other items in this table. And I think that to our be the best of our ability, and I've highlighted some of the difficulties, we were able to meet many of these principles. And I think for me, the learning process from this has been that I think there's huge value in being made to be explicit about what it is that you do, why you make decisions, and how you go about them. And I think that's not just true about 
admission policies, I think it's true about many processes in, in intensive care. And I think it's probably taught us an enormous amount about how you bring out those issues, have to crystallize what you're trying to achieve, and then set about ways of achieving those goals in, in a fair and really collegial fashion. Dr. Argent, um, you know, we thank you for being with us today. As you noted uh, at the beginning, I think there's not an ICU across the world that doesn't make triage decisions in some way or another. And uh, what you've done in this manuscript, uh, to my knowledge, is one of the first times that the development, the design, the development, and implementation of a triage mechanism uh, has been reported in literature in our community. And um, as we noted in the editorial that Dr. Kasun and I did on this, uh, this manuscript, we think you did a great service uh, to report on your efforts to try to balance all of these competing needs in your community in, in South Africa. Um, and as you noted, um, we called for an international uh, collaboration mm -hmm. to develop further guidelines in this direction and further input. Um, I suspect you'd be willing uh, to uh, be part of it, if not lead such an effort? I would most certainly be very happy to be part of a process like that. I would also be fascinated to learn from that process as to all the factors that people in different settings would have to take into account as they balanced out these decisions in their own settings. But I think that as a community, and as a community that uses huge amounts of resources, we have to be accountable to show that we do this in a trustworthy way with carefully thought out reasoning and thought as to why it is that we do it in this particular way. And the world community needs to hold us accountable for that. Well, it's very well said, and we thank you for your willingness to um, be with us today and share uh, this experience uh, with all of your colleagues around the world. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.